So we're starting with a, a word, apocalypse. I just listened to Dan Carlin's podcast on World War One, which is the blueprint for Armageddon, as he says. And got me to thinking about Armageddon and apocalypse. We often see these words as interchangeable. Armageddon and Apocalypse, the end of the world. Like the movie, you know, Armageddon, with an asteroid and Bruce Willis and all that. And we talk about the apocalypse and the zombie apocalypse and what that's going to be. And certainly that's where the words are now. Both Armageddon and Apocalypse are the origins somewhere else. But their meaning now is the end of the world fire and brimstone and Seth Rogen and friends running around and being chased by demons. Apocalypse, though, does not mean the same thing as Armageddon. They're two different words. Apocalypse is a Greek word. It comes from the basic root of calypso. Calypsane. This is the same root that the character in Homer's work, The Odyssey, has her name from, Calypso, um, and the relationship of the music to that character, I, I don't know. But Calypso is, her, her name means the same thing as this word, Calypsane. Calypsane means to shadow over, to cover over. That's why we call an eclipse an eclipse, because an eclipse is a shadowing over of the sun or a shadowing over of the moon. And just as we would say, like in Latin, we'd say umbrella. Umbrella is a little shadow. In Latin, umbra is shadow, as in the penumbra of the, of the earth or the penumbra of the moon, the shadow. In Greek, eclipse saying is to cover over, to shadow over. And hence it means a, a veil, something that is used to shadow over. Just as an umbrella is used to create an umbra, a calypso is used to create a cover over, a shadow over of something. So when we talk about the apocalypse, we talk about the, the time when that shadow is removed from the scales or removed from the eyes, for instance, to use a, a Pauline image. When the shadow is removed or the veil is removed or the veil of the temple is torn in twain, um, that's when everything is going to be revealed. The apocalypse means the removing of the shadow, the removing of the veil. And of course, at the end of the world, all things will be revealed, right? That everything it will be revealed to us that is hidden now behind this shadow world that we live in. But the meaning of the word also means something else to the, the audience that would have heard it in the 3rd century or the 4th century BC. They would have thought uh, also of what that temple really was, the Temple of Solomon and and what that actually represented when the veil of the Temple of Solomon was removed. So when we talk about the apocalypse, uh, even during the 
the first or second century AD, this meaning of the removal of the temple was still pretty prominent. The veil of the temple, the Calypso, the Calypsine, these Greek-educated Jews who were writing in the first century AD would have seen the Calypsine as the veil of the temple and would have thought when that veil of the temple is removed, all things will be revealed. And of course, that's a reference to the interior of the, the, the church, the sanctum sanctorum of the holy temple. And in that sanctum sanctorum, you didn't know what was there. Um, it was a hidden place. You know, the, the, the temple of Solomon was divided into sections. There was that outer courtyard where uh, only the, um, the, the men would come to make their sacrifice of, of chickens or goats or what have you. And then there was the inner temple where only the men could go. So you could go, if I remember right, on the outer courtyard was the, the men and women and then the inner, inner part of the church, of the temple, only men could go to worship. And then in the sanctum sanctorum, only the priests could enter into that, that part of the temple. So here in the inner part of the temple, what was there? Well, it was hidden by a veil, by a colossine. And the, the evidence seems to point to the idea that there are two sections within that Holy of Holies, that Sanctum Sanctorum. Two sections of basically the same shape. Jews were really big on uh, geometry and on mathematics. And there's a whole school of thought called gematria in Jewish thought, Kabbalistic thought, which dictated the design of buildings and the design of ceremonies and the design of songs and the design of artwork and the use of numbers and et cetera, et cetera. Anytime numbers were used, they were used consciously. So the temple for the, for the Jews, the Solomonic temple of the Jews, was a reflection of the theology which had developed over the past five, six hundred years. And Solomon's temple at its core, at the very heart, the Sanctum Sanctorum, represented what's at the very heart of creation. The created world was outside there in the outer marketplace, in the outer courtyard of the temple, even in the inner part of the temple. But the Sanctum Sanctorum was the very heart of the faith, the very center of it. And what was there was hidden from public view. You didn't, you didn't see what was there. It, it was so sacred that the priests alone, the high priests alone could go in there. And the rumor may have been apocryphal, I don't know. The rumor is that the high priest would have a cord tied around his leg so that if he fainted or if he died within that sanctum sanctorum, the other uh, priest could pull him out. The other um, rabbis could pull him out so that he wouldn't be inside of sanctum sanctorum because they couldn't go. That inner part of the temple seems to have, as I said, contained two rooms, two sections. Each one was, was basically a, a cube. Um, and those two cubes together made up a rectangle. So the Sanctum Sanctorum was a rectangle shape. Now, immediately, being at all interested in mathematics, sacred mathematics especially, you'd recognize that those two squares put together to a rectangle is the beginning of the golden proportion, the golden ratio. From there, you get that expansion, what's called gnomic expansion, uh, expansion into greater and greater forms that are basically the same proportion uh, that spiral outwards to 
the greater dimensions of the world itself. So symbolically speaking, we're looking at the very heart of what's at the Jewish faith, the center of creation itself, and also that center of gnomic expansion in a mathematical manner. The one room, it seems to be the case, contained the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was, you know, if we've seen Indiana Jones, you get an idea the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of power, and uh, that's very Hollywood, theatrical, and, and, and special effectsy. But the Ark of the Covenant seems to have contained the Torah, the, 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 the laws of the, um, of the Jewish faith. Those Ten Commandments that were given to Moses up on Mount Sinai. And within that Ark of the Covenant was a concrete manifestation of God's covenant with the Jewish people. It was direct evidence that God existed, that there was a something there that uh, man had a direct connection to God. So there was that half of the, the Sanctum Sanctorum. But the other half of the Sanctum Sanctorum was very odd. It was very strange. It was very unique in the ancient world. And um, apparently there was nothing in there. Uh, the, the story goes that when Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem, and again, this may be apocryphal. I don't, I don't know whether this is absolutely accurate or not, but when uh, when when he goes to conquer Jerusalem, normally when you conquered a city, you took the gods of the city. You would enter into their temples, you would swipe their gods and take their gods back to your city. Sort of a ha ha ha, my god is stronger than your god sort of thing. And showing that their gods were powerless to stop the pilfering of the effigies of the, of the temples. You go and you swipe their gods and you take them back. And that was pretty much regular practice in the ancient world. But with the the Jewish people, when Alexander goes in there to um, conquer Jerusalem, he goes into the Sanctum Sanctorum, and he's there for a bit, and he comes out, and he's pale as a sheet, and he's sweating, he's scared, stiff, terrified. Why? Because he goes in, and there's nothing there. These people worship nothing? What is that? This is very odd. So, uh, if in that other half of the temple um, there was nothing, that says something about the Jewish faith. Now, again, we don't know absolutely whether this is a, the case because the, the Temple of Solomon was destroyed, and we don't have anything left now but the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, which is a, the outer um, wall of the Temple where the, the Jews go to, to make prayers now. But the rumor is that half of the Sanctum Sanctorum contained in a cubic room the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and in the other half there was nothing at all. This points to a Jewish tenet of belief that the manifestation of God, the Ein Sof, came in two manifestations, two different forms. There was a nothing and there was a something. That God's first um, involvement in the world is involvement as a something and as a nothing. And the something of God manifested in the world is, is pretty reassuring. You know, there is definitely God, and he's definitely there, and um, we have connection to him through the law. But the nothing of God is very difficult for most people to handle. That at the heart of the the one, the, the Einsoff, the infinite, uh, there is uh, a nothingness as well as a something. There is a dark and there is a light. There is a being and non-being. 
Um, one could say that this sort of dualist thinking runs throughout all of the Jewish faith. And indeed, it runs through much of the ancient world itself, that at the very heart of the mystery, when things are revealed, we'll see what the heart of our own existence really is. It's like what William Blake said in one of his poems. He said, when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything will be seen as it really is, which is infinite. And indeed, in the Jewish faith, when the veil of the temple is rent in twain, when the veil is taken away, when the calypse is apod, apocalypse, when that happens, we'll see that at the very heart of things, there is definitely a reassurance that there is a something, but there is also a nothing. And of course, this will happen at the end of the world. But the other suggestion is that it is already happening, that when we look at ourselves, when we do self-examination, which really any end-of-the-world material is supposed to be about, actually. I mean, yeah, it's kind of about what will happen when the asteroid hits the planet or, you know, when the sun goes out or whatever. Yeah, it's about that. But it's also more about what you and I think about, what we see when we actually do any kind of interior introspection. And what we see at the very heart of our introspection is that we do exist, and we also don't exist. And this is paradoxical, that the heart of the Jewish faith was a paradox. The paradoxical nature of existence, as Fritz Wilhelmsen used to say. And man's whole existence is a paradox. We are both being and non-being, living and non-living at the same time. We came into the world at one point when we were not before, and we will go out of the world and no longer be except for as a memory. And that's, in some ways, already happening from the moment we pop into the world. This reminds me of a koan from the Buddhist faith, and I'll end with this. The Buddhist koan, koans are told in Buddhist uh, philosophy in order to challenge, in order to make us think about our world around us. And the koan goes something like how the monk goes into the temple to view the holy relic. Everybody's revering this relic, it's so great, and the monk goes in to see it. And he walks up to the relic with his staff in his right hand. And he says, there's no holy relic at all there. There's just a, a statue, just a material object. And he stands there for a minute and he switches his staff to his left hand. And he says, behold, there is a holy relic before me. Both at the same time, just as a question of two hemispheres of the brain, so to speak. We perceive things both as existing and non-existing, as holy and non-holy, as beautiful and not beautiful. And it's in that paradox, very difficult to remain, but that, that is the place wherein human life exists. That is the paradoxical nature of our own being or non-being. So that's the nature of apocalypse. The veil will be removed and you will see all things as infinite. And in their infinity, you'll see that our own small existence of 70, 80 years, or what have you, is paradoxical. It is both being and non-being. It is both material and spiritual. It is both gross matter and beautiful spirit.